The deepening of the faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, meaning the ever-virgin. Well, I, I struggled, if I, in the name of transparency, let you know, I struggled a little bit for a while with what to do with our sermon this morning because uh, we should be transitioning into the book of Titus as we continue through our pastoral sermon series. Uh, but um, I wanted to begin Advent next week. I wanted us to start to take the month of December and to focus uh, our anticipation and our thoughts on the incarnation, uh, thoughts on God made man. And so I didn't want to preach just one opening sermon on Titus for us to then abandon it for a month and then come back to it and try to remember the introduction from a month ago. So I, I sort of had a Sunday where uh, I had some freedom to, to do what I wanted to do until we begin Advent and then get back into Titus. And as I was sitting there praying, I, I just had, you know, Christmas and Advent on my mind, I guess. And uh, I couldn't help but think of one of the most popular ways in the Western church that our Christmas story has been corrupted. And so I wanted to take some time today to dedicate uh, our reading of the word and our hearing of the word and our study of the word to understanding where we as a church stand on a very important issue that is extremely popular in the Western church and has been for quite some time. And we just read what you heard at the beginning was from the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is primarily a Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, but as we will see, it is not exclusive to Roman Catholicism alone, and that is this issue of Mary being the Aparthenos, the ever-virgin. There's a belief throughout church history, and it is, it is a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church today, that we as Christians believe in what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary. What that means is that Mary remained a virgin her entire life that Jesus Christ was the only child that Mary ever had. The earliest attestation to this belief has some embarrassing origins. What I mean by that is we don't have anything from the first three centuries of the church that speak to this issue with exception of what are known as apocryphal gospels, which means that these were documents uh, written in the second, third, sometimes first centuries, which were trying to pretend to be written from uh, Jesus' eyewitnesses or the apostles themselves and make their way into the Christian canon. There are some apocryphal gospels that didn't make it into our Bible that are not problematic. Right, there's one, for example, called the Shepherd of Hermas. And the Shepherd of Hermas is largely a healthy document. The church fathers quoted from it all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. But it didn't meet our canonicity criteria, so it isn't in our Bibles. But most of the apocryphal Gospels didn't find their way into our Bibles for very serious reasons. Because they were unchristian, Gnostic, pagan documents. And the documents, the majority of the documents that first speak of this issue as Mary always being a virgin throughout her entire life comes from those kinds of pagan documents. However, uh, we need to be fair to the history of this belief because although it has some embarrassing uh, original roots, it is extremely popular in Christian history. This is not a fringe idea. 
Um, these names may not mean anything to you, and if, that, if that's the case, that's okay. But just to list some huge figureheads in the early church, the, these are people that we often refer to as the church fathers. And what that means is in the earliest centuries of the church, remember, they didn't have technology back then, so you couldn't just read the everyday layman's blog. Right? People couldn't self-publish. So what we have today are the, the influential writers and thinkers of the Christian church. And we call them, refer to them as the church fathers. And among them are men like Origen, Ambrose, Hillary, and the ever-famous Augustine. And all four of them passionately held to this idea that Mary had no other children but Christ. I mentioned it's the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, so this was the primary understanding of Mary throughout the medieval ages. And believe it or not, this was one of the few things that the reformers, many of our prominent reformers, tried to keep. John Calvin himself maintained that Mary was forever a virgin. Martin Luther himself maintained that Mary was ever virgin. So this is a popular understanding in church history. Respected men... The majority of people for the last 2,000 years have likely held to this belief. So the question is, well, what do we do with it? Well, we're going to look at that today. And if you're wondering, well, why this? I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, why this matters so much in our conclusion. But let's address this today. Would you please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1 Beginning in verse 18, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I would encourage you to read along with me, for these are the very words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So let me just remind us of this Christmas story really quickly. So Joseph is, the text says he's betrothed to Mary, and a common understanding of that relationship in our day and age is what we call an engagement. They're engaged to be married. But now we need to understand there's a big difference between first century Jewish engagement and 21st century American engagement. Uh, An engagement in uh, in America, when, when you got engaged to your spouse, this was not a binding contract you entered into. Right? It was, you ask if, will you marry me? And if they say you do, it's kind of an informal agreement. Yeah, like, yes, we will do this. But there's nothing binding. You can, you can break that at no cost to you and no sin before God at any moment in time up until your wedding vows. In the first century, this was not the case. Uh, the engagement was a legal contract. So you, to break off an engagement in first century uh, Jewish culture is to get a divorce. You, you can actually divorce someone you're not married to. 
So, and, and, and this is important because notice how it says in verse 18 that they're betrothed, but then how does verse 19 refer to Joseph, her husband? So, in, in, in their culture, what they would do is they would get engaged, and that was basically their marriage vows, but they were not considered fully married until they came together, lived together, and consummated it. And that's what we see uh, at the end of the text, for example, when it says in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. So what does that mean? It means that Mary and Joseph have now entered into that formal living arrangement of marriage couples, but they postponed an important part of marriage. He took her as his wife, but he didn't do what they commonly would do when that happens. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So they're engaged, they come together, and then after Jesus is born, they, well, we'll fill in the rest in a minute. But here's what I, I want us to understand here, that the whole purpose of this chapter is to affirm something that everyone agrees. This is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. If, if this is something you find yourself denying, then you are, by definition, not a Christian. And, and all, what Matthew is trying to get us to see here is that Jesus was born to a virgin, Jesus was not conceived in the natural sense. And that's not the point of our disagreement with other people in Western Christianity historically. We all agree that Jesus was born of a virgin. And the text goes out of its way to say that. Because Joseph, remember, Mary's pregnant and he knows that she's a virgin. At least she's, she, they haven't had any kind of relationship and that's why he's ready to divorce her. That's why he's ready to say, I mean, you can imagine that it'd be kind of an awkward situation, right? You're your engaged, your engaged virgin comes to you and says, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, God did it. <laughs> yeah, right, Mary. So God knows that this, this really doesn't make sense from a human perspective. So God sends an angel to miraculously communicate to Joseph, she's telling you the truth. But again, the text belabors over and over again for us to see that Jesus is born of a virgin. And this is huge. I go so far to say this, that if Jesus was not born of a virgin, you are dead in your sins. Why do I say that? Well, because verse 24, or forgive me, verse 23, 22 and 23 says that being born of a virgin was part of the prophecy. The Messiah had to be born of a virgin to be the Messiah. So if Jesus is not born of a virgin, he's not the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, his death didn't do anything for you. So if he's not born of a virgin, you are not going to heaven. This is vitally important for us. And it also just separates Jesus as the Son of God, even when we're not talking in terms of prophecy, right? Uh, the fact that Jesus was miraculously conceived speaks to his innately unique character, nature, and purpose. So for those two reasons, it is vital for us to understand the historic, but more importantly, the biblical understanding that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus' mother was a virgin when he was born. But then it raises this question, what about afterward? Did Mary remain in her state of virginity for the rest of her life? And we're gonna see three reasons in this text as to why that idea should be rejected by our church. That idea should not be accepted by our church. Three reasons in this text. The first reason is that they came together. The first reason is they came together. Look at verse 18 with me. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what does this verse imply? That Jesus was conceived before Mary and Joseph came together. But if it happened before they did that, what does it mean? They did do that. Something can't take place before something that never happens. It can't be before an event that doesn't happen. They did come together. They came together, and Matthew wants us to know, by the way, Jesus was conceived before that happened. Now, what some people would argue is that, well, coming together just means before they got married. It just, it just means that before they got married. And that is technically a part of it. I mean, they came together in marriage, but here's why we have to understand that this coming together is definitely involving the intimacy that happens when you come together in marriage. Because if they came together in marriage only, then Matthew's point is irrelevant. And here's what I mean by that. If Mary remained a virgin even after marriage, then it doesn't do us any good to prove Jesus was born of a virgin to say that, by the way, he was conceived before they got married. If she was a virgin after marriage, let's just assume that for a moment, then Jesus could have been conceived after marriage and still have been born of a virgin. So what point does it make to say, by the way, Jesus was conceived before they got married? Well, apparently, they never slept together even after they got married, so he could have been conceived at any point in time and it still would have been a virgin birth. Matthew's entire argument falls apart if you try to separate the natural relations that happen from coming together from verse 18. Matthew's whole point is, yes, Jesus and, or Mary and Joseph did come together. They did engage in intimacy together. But what you need to know is that Jesus was conceived before that. The whole argument of the virgin birth is actually rests upon the idea that they did come together. They came together. Text says it very explicitly. A similar thing is found in verse 25 with that key word of until. Look at verse 25, or we'll begin in 24. Joseph woke from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but they postponed that important aspect of marriage. And he says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So just like we saw in verse, what does the until imply? That he did eventually know her and, and we know that this word, to know her, this is what we call a euphemism. And I got my English degree. We call that a euphemism. What's a euphemism? A euphemism is where you take something that's kind of crass and inappropriate, and you describe it in a way that softens it up a little bit. Right? Like, we do this all the time when people die. There's just something kind of harsh about saying, your husband is dead. Your mother's dead. Right? So we, we, we typically say something like, they've passed away. Well, what does that mean to, to pass away? That doesn't really, in a certain sense, it doesn't make sense, but it softens it up, right? That's just a, a nicer way of saying something. And, and when we start talking about sexual intimacy, we have lots of euphemisms, ways of speaking about it where it's not so awkward and detailed. And one of them is, is, is this concept of knowing somebody, right? Because we know that this isn't meaning literal intellectual knowledge. He knew her not. He's been engaged to Mary for a long time. He knows about Mary, right? He knows her already. Yet it says he knew her not until well after their engagement in marriage. Uh, no, this is a euphemism for they came together intimately. We see this, by the way, back in Genesis 1. 
The Bible says that Adam knew Eve, and then what happened? She bore a son. (laughs) This is not intellectual knowledge. The text is explicitly telling us here, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Again, he's trying to make this point that Jesus was born of a virgin. Matthew is saying, yes, Mary and Joseph knew each other intimately, and yes, they had many children together, but what you need to know is that Jesus was birthed before that. Again, the argument completely falls apart if we try to make this some kind of marriage without sexual intimacy. So the first reason is that the text tells us they came together. The second reason is the text tells us until she gave birth. But here's my last reason. The fact that they got married. They got married. Mary got married. Again, look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He got married. And here's why I say that that's an ultimate argument. From a biblical historical standpoint, the concept of a married virgin is an oxymoron. A married virgin is an oxymoron. Everybody in this room knows what's entailed with a marriage. Everybody knows that when you get married, this starts happening. And this was true in the first century as well. It is, it, is, it is unthinkable to think of two people deciding to get married but never sharing in any kind of intimacy together. From biblical historical perspective, that is unthinkable. As a matter of fact, uh, Joseph and Mary aside, because that's the point of contention, you can't use that, you will not find a single example in all of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, of celibate spouses. You will find lots of examples of people who choose to be celibate. You will find lots of examples of people who choose to surrender sexual intimacy to the world and give their life to Christ, but all of those examples are unmarried people. Right? Paul speaks very highly of celibacy. He wasn't married. The concept of I'm going to give my life to celibacy but still marry someone is unthinkable biblically and historically. It doesn't happen. They got married. And that settles the debate. And if we want understanding of that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, I would argue that from Paul's definition of marriage, you cannot be married if you are going to remain celibate. I would argue that the primary purpose of marriage is to avoid celibacy. I think we're going to see Paul say this pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says this beginning at chapter, in verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul has received a letter from Corinth and there's a debate in Corinth about the, the, the concept of sexual intimacy with a woman and there are some people who for some reason believe that you're like more holy if you're celibate. Right? People who are celibate like Paul, like Jesus, they're clearly more holy. And so Paul is going to sort of put that to death. That's not true at all. So he's refuting this concept that really godly, righteous men should avoid sexual relations. If you want to be truly pious, you should be be celibate. And Paul's going to tell us, no, that's not the case. Verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So here's what Paul says. 
The primary, one of the primary purposes of marriage is to keep you from sinning sexually. So here's the problem. If you engage in a marriage without sexual intimacy, you have not solved the problem. (laughs) Marriage has done you no good. You see, it's wrapped up in Paul's understanding of marriage. But we continue. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her, her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Look at what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the reason you get married is so that you don't fall into sexual sin. And when you are married, you need to be having sexual relations. You're not allowed to deny that of your spouse. And then he goes on to say, if you want to be a celibate spouse, you might do that. Only maybe, perhaps you should do that. So you should maybe do that. And if you do do that, both parties need to be in agreement and it needs to be for a very limited time. Why? Because of your lack of self-control, you will fall back into temptation. So again, Paul sees a celibate spouse as being one of the most dangerous, unfathomable institutions that we can possibly enter into. Wrapped up in Paul's understanding of marriage are these what the ESV calls conjugal rights. And to not engage as those, Paul would say, you are depriving your spouse of something they are owed. And Paul says, if you don't engage in these things, you have now made yourself fall into temptation to sin sexually outside of marriage. To be married and remain celibate is, a land, is walking through a field of landmines. It is unthinkable to think that Mary and Joseph got married to remain celibate. And you want to know what is the greatest proof of all of this, just sort of saving for the last? What's the greatest proof that when Mary and Joseph got married, they did what married couples do? The Bible tells us over and over and over and over again that Mary had other children. I could list over 10 examples of this, but for time's sake, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 55 and look at through verse 56. Or forgive me, let's start at verse 53 for some context. Verse 53 of Matthew chapter 13. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, that's important, so Jesus is the place where he grew up, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? 
And folks, this is not just one obscure example. You can go through the New Testament and see over and over again the, the Bible explicitly telling us that Mary and Joseph had other children, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. You have a book in your Bible called the book of James, and in its introduction, James is said to be the brother of our Lord. Mary and Joseph had other children. Now, you, you might ask, how on earth then do brilliant people read texts like this and say, wow, oh, still, he has no brothers and sisters? Well, they, they use a very bizarre argument from the Greek. The, the word for brother in our, uh, in our New Testament is the word adelphos. Uh, you hear this, for example, does anybody know what the, uh, the nickname for the city of Philadelphia is? Well, the Philly, is that, that's its abbreviated name, but it has a, a bigger name. I think someone said it. The city of brotherly love. Phila, love. Delphos, brother. Brother, love. The city of love, brother. City of brotherly love. Adelphos is his word for brother. And the argument is made that, well, Adelphos can mean cousin or relative. And so even though apparently every single Bible translator in the English language has, has all those Greek experts that have put together every single Bible translation, they've all misunderstood this apparently because they all use words like brothers and sisters. They don't use words like cousins or relatives. So despite the fact that every Greek scholar that has ever translated a published New Testament has not understood this, I don't know why every single Greek scholar has missed it, but apparently we were supposed to be led to believe that really what the Bible should read is that Jesus had cousins and relatives, not brothers and sisters. Well, here's a couple reasons for us to not understand that to be the case. Number one, the concept of Adelphos, meaning it could mean cousin or relative, was an outdated understanding by the time of the first century. The reason people say that is because we've talked here about what's called the Greek Septuagint, I think, before. And the Greek Septuagint was the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, right? After Rome took over, and Rome took over Jerusalem, and Rome took over the Jews, over time, Jews are now, are now part of Roman culture, and they're speaking Roman language. And so a group of Jewish rabbis got together and said it would be helpful that some of our Greek-speaking Jews could have a Bible in Greek. So they took the Old Testament and they translated it into Greek. And we have examples in the Old Testament where the word Adelphos is used of a cousin or a relative. But here's the problem. Well, there's multiple problems. Here's the first one. The Greek Septuagint was made 200 years before the writing of the New Testament. Words change a lot over 200 years. Just from 1960 is when the word gay started to refer to sexual orientation. 200 years ago, it would be appropriate to describe this as a gay church. You don't use that word anymore because it's changed. It's not appropriate to take a usage from 200 years prior to a document and import it into that document. And what you will find when you actually look at the New Testament document that Adelphos in the writing of the first century, not prior, does not ever mean cousin or relative. And here's the best way we have of knowing that. The Bible talks about cousins and relatives. And guess what word it never ever uses to describe those? 
Adelphos. The New Testament writers had Greek words at their disposal to describe cousins and relatives. And they not only had them at their disposal, we know they used them in other places. Why on earth would we think that the Greek writers of the New Testament, not Greek in heritage, but the Greek-speaking writers, would take a word like Adelphos and every time use it to describe brothers and sisters, except when talking about Jesus' brothers and sisters, they're now going to use a word that they don't use in the other places in the New Testament when they actually talk about cousins. Folks, there is no reason to think this. And here's the best example of this I can pull. Again, I could pull multiple examples. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 16. Jesus is warning his disciples of the cost of Christianity. And look at what he says in verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents, by brothers, and relatives, and friends. So Jesus says, if you're going to be a Christian, there's a chance that you're going to be hated by your parents, by your friends, by your brothers, and by your relatives. Are we supposed to read this as, is is this really how we're supposed to read this? Uh, You will be delivered up by parents, by relatives, by relatives, and by friends? No, because you want to know why? There was a word in New Testament Greek, first century, for brothers, and there were separate words for relatives. Words like syngenis, which is used here is used for relatives. And then we even have a word for cousin. Anepsios. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul is concluding this letter the way he is known to conclude his letters. He says in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark who? The cousin of Barnabas. And guess what Greek word is not used there? Adelphos. He uses anepsios. So again, let me summarize this point. All throughout the New Testament, cousins and close relatives are are talked about explicitly, and the word Adelphos is not used of them. Adelphos is always used of a physical or spiritual brother. It makes no sense to say, well, yeah, when Paul's writing and when, the other, when they're talking about cousins and relatives not related to Jesus, they're going to use these Greek words. But once they start talking about Jesus' cousins and relatives, they're going to use the word that elsewhere they only used of brothers and sisters. That's inconsistent with our Greek. No, the Bible had a word for relative, the Bible had a word for cousin, and it never used those to describe Jesus' brothers and sisters. Joseph and Mary got married, and Joseph and Mary had children, and Jesus had brothers and sisters. That is what the Bible teaches. Now, why does this matter? Why did I talk about this? Well, here's a few reasons. Number one, I think it's slightly relevant to the season, right, where... Coming up upon Advent and Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about the virgin birth. We're going to be talking about the birth of Christ. And it's, under, it's, it's important for us to understand that we understand the whole scope of the story accurately and biblically. So I, I think it's just kind of relevant. I'm excited for Christmas, in other words. 
But there's another reason. Well, there's a couple other reasons. Number one, this is just important education. As I said, the perpetual virginity of Mary has been believed by figureheads for the last 2,000 years. It's important that we as a Christian church are exposed to prominent, popular Christian teachings, especially false ones, so that we know how to work through it. And we're not surprised when we hear for the first time, oh, did you know that Martin Luther believed this? Did you know that Augustine believed this? This is just important educational material. But here's the, the primary reason why I wanted to discuss this today. I think this is the case all the time, but especially as we work towards a holiday season, I think the reason this is so important for us to discuss is because this, it reminds us the danger of tradition. This reminds us of the danger of tradition. Now, what do I mean by that? There, tra not all tradition is created equally. Right? There are, there are really small traditions I don't have in mind here. Like my, every year my family has a turkey for Thanksgiving. That's a tradition, and I'm not saying that's dangerous. Unless there's a bad cook, then it might be dangerous. So I'm not talking about family traditions, but when we're talking about church traditions, theological understandings of the Bible... Traditions are extremely dangerous, and we all have them. None of us learned the Bible in a vacuum. None of us, all of us, whether you grew up in the church or not, every one of us comes to the Bible with preconceived notions and teachings that have been taught to us, and those are called traditions, and sometimes they're true, sometimes they're false, but there is a real danger for our traditions to take over and cause us to read the Bible a certain way because we've always believed this to be true. Because it's just so hard to abandon what we all always knew. It is so hard to disagree with the Bible, or forgive me, it is so hard to agree with the Bible when my parents and my parents' parents and church history and the church around me have, have all said this same thing that I no longer am feeling the Bible teaches anymore. There is nothing, the, the, the only thing powerful enough to actually bring people to the text and see that Jesus had brothers and sisters and see that Joseph and Mary got married and to see that Joseph and Mary came together and see he kept her a virgin until they got married, to see all of that evidence and say, yeah, they never slept together. That's called reading the Bible through a filter. That's called taking something you want to believe and forcing it into the spaces of the words in the Bible. That's what tradition does, is it forces us to take beliefs to the Bible rather than taking beliefs from the Bible. Tradition is dangerous because it obscures the way we see the Bible. And, and more importantly, the reason tr tradition is so dangerous is because tradition has no boundaries. The Bible has boundaries. That's why I love when people say, don't put God in a box. And I say, that's funny because my Bible looks a lot like a box. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, is to put God in a box. Because he has revealed boundaries to me. But when you have these mystical traditions, there are no boundaries to them. There is nothing to stop them from growing and growing and growing and growing. And that's why, of all the Marian dogmas and beliefs about Mary you could read in church history, perpetual virginity is without a doubt the most tame. People believe some of the most wild things that you can possibly imagine about this wonderful woman we know as Mary. People believe in what's called the Immaculate Conception, which means she was born without original sin and never committed a sin in her entire life. They believe that Mary was a perfect human being. 
They believed that Mary was, um, was bodily assumed into heaven, most of them believing that she never even died because she had no sin and death is the consequence of sin, so Mary went straight to heaven. And then once she got to heaven, she now was put in charge over what's called a treasury of merit because she has so many good works that she takes all of the good works she lived on earth and she puts them in the treasury of merit. And so you can now come to the church, get an indulgence, and receive some of Mary's good works and then apply Mary's good works to your account. Mary is known as the queen of heaven and the mother of the church. And you want to know where all this began? Perpetual virginity. So this is, this is not a, just a small dispute. Because there is no stopping us. For example, I want to read to you a quote that has been accepted by every pope of the modern era. And by the way, it's not just Roman Catholics who believe these things we're talking about, although they're the most prevalent ones. This is what happens when you allow tradition to take you outside the text, you might start praying something like this. O mother of perpetual help, you, O Mary, are the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us miserable sinners. And for this reason, God has made you so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful that you may help us in our misery. You, O Mary, are the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to you. Come then, Mary, to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to you. In your hands I place my eternal salvation, and to you, O Mary, do I entrust my soul. Count me among your most devoted servants. Take me under your protection. It is not enough for me. For if you protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing. I fear nothing not from my sins, because you will obtain pardon for my sins. I fear not devils, because you are more powerful than all of hell together. And I do not even fear Jesus, my judge, because one prayer from you and he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation I may neglect to call on you and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me then the pardon of my sins. Obtain for me then love for Jesus. Obtain for me final perseverance and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O mother of perpetual help. That's where tradition, unbridled, unchecked tradition takes you. By the way, the author of this book that I'm quoting from, he was debating a Roman Catholic on a radio show, and he, he read that. And he asked the Roman Catholic, do you accept that prayer? And guess what? how the Roman Catholic apologist responded? He said, it is my prayer that by the grace of God, one day you and I will be praying that together. And it all started with perpetual virginity. We have to understand in the Christmas season, in the Thanksgiving season, in every other season of our lives, we are always needing to go back to the scriptures, always checking, do, is what I believe really what the Bible says? We need to constantly take ourselves back to the scriptures because as we see, men greater than myself have erred. I, I still, to this day, John Calvin, I think is the most brilliant theologian that has ever existed that wasn't an apostle. That, that's my personal opinion. I love John Calvin. But even a mind so great as himself 
was able to believe something that I think is so patently untrue. Nobody is unprone to be sucked into the allure of tradition. We are all prone to it. We all have them. And so it is so important for us to remember that church history is important, but it is not our authority. And the church I grew up in matters, but it is not my authority. And what my parents taught me is important, but it is not my authority. We, as a people of God, are constantly supposed to go back all the time to the Bible and re-examine and re-reform. The Reformation is never, ever over. And lastly, I want to make this final point very briefly. The reason tradition is so dangerous is because the enemy is working tirelessly to make sure that our focus and our attention is not on Christ, right? Nothing in that prayer we read. If that was devoted to Jesus, it'd be great. I'd, I'd probably make it our reader response. But it wasn't to Jesus, was it? And that's what the enemy wants. And what I want us to avoid is when we come to the Advent season next week, as we come to Christmas thinking Christmas is about anything other than Jesus, Advent is not about Joseph, although he was a great man of God. Advent is not about Mary, although she was a great woman of God. Advent is not about Augustine, though he was a great man of God. Advent is not about Calvin, though he was a great man of God. What is Advent about? Advent is about this. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, because that means God with us. That's what Christmas is about. Emmanuel the Savior of the world. That is what next week we will begin to focus our attention and our hearts to adore. And just remember, if Mary and Joseph were in the room with us right now together, they would be giving a hearty amen. They want our attention and our focus on Christ. Advent is about Christ. Do not let Satan take your attention on anything else.